one guest, 10 songs, 10 reasons. Music was my first love on Radio Glamorgan. I feel I should be there. I should be on the front line. Why are they having to take it? Well, it was ridiculous. I'm in my 80s. So I, I certainly identified what they were going through and uh, felt, really felt for them. The uh, genuine empathy and guilt that I wasn't helping. As we are essentially a hospital radio station, I'm delighted that my guest today, the 80th to take part in music with my first love, is a retired British surgical oncologist and still, as he heads into his 80s, one of, if not the world's leading authorities in the continuing fight against breast cancer, Professor Michael Baum. Having qualified in 1960, five years later in 1965, he became fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons. He has been Professor of Surgery at King's College London, the Royal Marsden Hospital and UCL. He's also known for his contributions to the evaluation and support of patient quality of life. Professor Baum established the first multi-centre collaborative group for trials of treatment for breast cancer in 1970 and on the back of that, 10 years later, the first purpose-built clinical trial centre. He established the first nurse counselling service at King's College Hospital in 1981 and the first psychosocial oncology research team at the same time. His team were the first to demonstrate the effectiveness of tamoxifen and he is the recipient of the St. Gallen Lifetime Achievement Award for the treatment of breast cancer. He's a notable critic of the alternative medicine and also questions breast cancer screening. In the foreword of Professor Bam's part autobiography, Breast Beating, broadcaster Nick Ross described him as a refreshing voice of reason and compassion, going on to say that his second-to-none knowledge of breast cancer, that his willingness to abandon old nostrums in the face of new research, is commendable, and that his determination, almost enthusiasm, to reject his own ideas when new facts point to new ones is a sign of real scientific greatness. With much to talk about, including the music, we'll hear from Professor Mike Baum after his first choice, which is the opening part of Handel's Water Music Suite. Professor Michael Baum, welcome to Hospital Radio Glamorgan's Music Was My First Love. No, thank you so much for inviting me. This is uh, an extraordinary experience. I'm uh, delighted to be with you. Thank you. It's nice to have you on. Tell me about your first choice, Handel's Water Music Suite. Ah, there are two reasons I chose that to start with. A few years back, the British Medical Journal, uh, uh, every year does a Christmas edition, which is full of quirky things. And the editor um, uh, sent a message round to some of the most senior um, famous uh, professors in medicine uh, to provide suggestions for music they'd like to be born to and music they'd like to be buried to. (laughs) And I happen to be one of those distinguished professors. Um, I chose Handel's Water Music because it seemed... Uh, for your birth, um, you need water music. So that was the first reason I chose it. The second reason is I love this piece, uh, all other things aside. Um, it's full of melodies. 
and I had a wonderful experience. Um, I was giving, I was a visiting professor at Stanford University on the west coast of America, and I'd given my teaching session. It was a beautiful day, and I was sitting out in the garden, and the Stanford University uh, concert group um, were playing Handel's water music, rehearsing it. So I heard the whole thing being rehearsed outdoors, and it was stunning to hear this mm. played out, uh, outside. And I, at that time, I thought, this is amazing. Handel has invented all the melodies that mm. have ever been written. Yeah. So uh, you, you listen to all the melodies in each section, and you think, ah, oh, yes, that reminds me of this, this reminds me of that. So to me, it's uh, the birth of a baby and the birth of melody. We've a lot to talk about, including each individual song, but let me ask you, have you always had a love of music? Uh, yes. Um, I remember just growing up, I, I, I should emphasise I'm 85, and I was, uh, um, I was around at the time of the end of the Second World War. I was around at the time of the Second World War. And Throughout that time, my father was always playing uh, records. He had a collection of um, classical music, uh, opera, and so on. And all the time, he was playing this music. So I grew up in a house where there was always music. And I've developed my own tastes over the uh, over a, a long lifetime but it was just growing up in a house where music was always played in your uh, biography which i mentioned earlier you you talk a lot about your family has faith been important to you well i belong to a jewish family i grew up in a jewish environment i um um I suppose I go to an Orthodox synagogue, but I have my own views on faith and uh, God. Um, I wrote a book last year, published a book last year, Why Am I a Jew? Question mark. Spinoza Revisited. So if people uh, force me to commit myself, I say I'm a Spinoza-type Jew. And he was a philosopher uh, 350 years ahead of his time. And the teaching of Spinoza are universal. So I, Spinoza is the, um, my favourite of all the prophets. Your, uh, <coughs> excuse me, your brother was a, a GP. Is that where the initial interest in medicine in general came from? Yes. Um, I worship my oldest brother. He was tall, handsome, uh, played rugby in the first team, and um, he, after he qualified, um, he, uh, he 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 had to do uh, his um, service to the Royal, Royal Army Medical Corps, and he was posted in um, in Egypt at the time. And when he came back wearing his captain uniform. I was so proud, and I thought, I want to be like him. Mm. Well, uh, so it's very much the influence 
of my oldest brother. And you, you qualified then in 1960. Your mother's illness and, and passing had a profound effect on you, didn't it? Which, which I guess, yeah. helped lead you to your chosen field of medicine. Uh, yes. Um, well, come back to when I worked in Wales. But at the time I was working in Wales, I think it was around about 1973, um, my mother was diagnosed with advanced metastatic breast cancer and to cut a long story short i witnessed her death painful death with bone metastases and i made me angry but who was i angry with it was difficult where to uh, to focus my anger so i was determined that i would do something to avoid the suffering uh, of my mother in, uh, as she died. And I, um, uh, I committed myself to a lifetime doing uh, diagnosis, research and treatment of breast cancer. Was there a danger then that your decision came out of anger and grief rather than logical and straight thinking decisions? Yes. <laughs> I think they can. I'm a scientist. I'm a, a, <laughs> I uh, think Spinoza was right, but I, I also am passionate about my job. And yeah. so, so some of my decisions are irrational. You're absolutely right. <laughs> okay. and before, we, before we come on to your second choice, just jumping way ahead, and you touched on it for a split second, uh, what brought the family in 1972 to Cardiff? I was appointed a consultant at the University Hospital of Wales, 1971. So I'd been, um, see, uh, I'd been a lecturer in surgery at King's College Hospital in London, and I was appointed senior lecturer, which is a consultant in the academic department of surgery at University Hospital of Wales. Your second choice, Michael, uh, tell me about this one. It's from Swan Lake. Well, it's, uh, that's a very easy choice. Um, Tchaikovsky, as I think, is my favourite composer. Oh, everything, he, he, uh, everything he wrote, I love. Uh, Swan Lake is easy to love. Everyone loves Swan Lake. But it reminds me that when I was a young man, before I long before I got married, I used to go to ballet. My wife doesn't like ballet very much, but I used to take myself off to ballet, and I loved it. And what's not to like about Swan Lake? It is the most beautiful music, beautiful choreography, and uh, that's why I love it. As you say, what's not to like? Yeah. <laughs> it's gorgeous. I've not heard that version before. It's absolutely gorgeous. For the sake of openness, Michael, we should say that uh, during your time in Cardiff, when I was a small, small boy, we knew each other, and I was friends with your son, Richard. And I should also mention uh, that I might refer to my late mother a couple of times who lost her 10-year battle with breast cancer in the summer of 91. Oh. Uh, for the uneducated among us, explain what a surgical oncologist is and, and what a clinical scientist is. Um, well, you, you, you can't be one w without the other if you're involved in ca uh, cancer, uh, cancer care. Oncology means the 
study of cancers. Onkos is lump in Greek. Uh, oncology is someone who uh, treats cancer. So a surgical oncologist, they're medical oncologists, uh, radiation oncologists, and surgical oncologists. It's a surgeon who concentrates on treating cancers. Now, a clinical scientist is someone who practices medicine or surgery, but includes his work in research. So um, every patient is looked on in two ways, an individual to be treated and cared for, and also someone who can contribute to the bank of knowledge we build up as a result of the outcomes of treatment. So that is the combination of being an oncologist and a clinical scientist. And at the start of your career, and, and in particular at the time of your mum's passing, how much did the medical profession really know about breast cancer? Uh, well, they, they knew everything there was to know. Um, and this is what I've, I went into the subject because um, I determined that no one knew anything about it. Um, and if that may sound surprising and arrogant, going back to uh, late 60s, early 70s. But uh, as far as most surgeons were concerned, it was finished. We know it all. Radical mastectomy. Cut it all away. Cure the patient. That's all you have to do. Cut it all away. And if it comes back, that means you haven't cut enough of the body away. And it was that simplistic thinking that really, really alarmed me. How is it that um, patients will still die of breast cancer 5, 10, 15 years later in spite of the fact that you've cut it all away? Mm. You know, the pathology comes back and they say, yes, the margins are clear, the lymph nodes are clear, right, you've cut it all away. And then uh, it comes back in five, six, seven years. And there was clearly something absolutely transparently wrong with what they were doing. So I started in uh, researching breast cancer really for two reasons. I was angry that my mother died in such pain and she wasn't adequately cared for. But at the same time, I realized that we really did not understand breast cancer. And uh, I made my contributions to the subject along the way, which, uh, so it, it's been a challenge. It's been a, a difficult life uh, on that side, but uh, I made my contributions. We'll talk a little bit more. I want to touch on the subject again later about uh, radical mastectomies. You've said in the past, if I understood you correctly, um, uh, that there are bigger health issues up the ladder to worry about ahead of breast cancer unless there's family history. Is it hereditary? And I ask that because many different suggestions have been written over the years, including that it only becomes hereditary if you develop breast cancer in your 30s. So how much of, do we know about its hereditary? Yes. Uh, well, I am very familiar with this subject. Um, there is a, a mutation, two mutations, BRCA1, BRCA2, they're called. And if you inherit that mutation, you've got um, an 80% uh, chance of getting breast cancer. It, so it's, um, it's a very powerful gene. 
And if you carry it, you're very likely to get breast cancer, number one. And the cancers you get tend to come on earlier, younger. It's exceptionally rare for breast cancer to appear below the age of 35. But if you carry this mutation, not only are you at high risk of getting breast cancer, you also are at high risk of getting it early in your life. And do we know uh, why it's so prevalent in the Jewish gene? Um, well, we call these the Ashkenazi mutations because uh, they're more common, much more common amongst Ashkenazi Jews. For those who don't know the distinction, the um, Ashkenazi uh, Jews are mostly come from Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, the other groups, Sephardi Jews, come from um, Portugal and Spain, and they tended not to intermarry. So it's possible, and so the Sephardim don't have this mutation. The Ashkenazim do, um, and it has to be in interbreeding uh, 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 along the populations um, of Jews throughout the centuries. They keep contracting and expanding. Along comes. Um, well, Hitler and going back to the Romans, all through the history and uh, the Inquisition and all that. So uh, there were times when the population shrunk very suddenly. So there was a lot of inbreeding. And this is why uh, this particular gene, which obviously... Um, uh, we think it's, uh, the BRCA1 probably uh, appeared about a thousand years ago and the BRCA2 about 700 years ago. Don't ask me how we calculate that, <laughs> just trust me on that. And uh, that's as a result of um, consanguineous uh, marriages, cousins marrying cousins. Yeah. Uh, and so that tends to... Uh, it, expand, magnify the distribution of the mutation. You asked for your third choice, um, a version of Sospanvach by a Welsh choir. The version I've chosen is from Only Boys Allowed. Uh, so tell me, of all the possible Welsh songs, why this one? <laughs> well, w one of my passions is rugby football. I um, And when I was living in Cardiff, um, it was early 70s, when the Welsh rugby team, national team, was the best in the world. Mm -hmm. Not only that, Llanetli beat the All Blacks, <laughs> a little town of 20,000 fielded a team that could beat the All Blacks. So to be in in Wales at the, this time, for someone who loves rugby, uh, it, it was beautiful. Um, not only that... Uh, J.P.R. Williams, who was a very famous fullback for Wales, for six months was my registrar. Uh, he was a, a young surgeon, and uh, they were. Um, it was an amateur game mostly in those days. And so uh, I remember I was once doing a, a ward round with um, being trailed by J.P.R. Williams, who towered over me, 
and a, a little old lady who I'd come to see, she said, oh, there's my doctor, J.P.R. Williams. <laughs> I said, well, actually, Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Brown, I'm your doctor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's my assistant. Um, but I was really deeply embedded in Welsh rugby. And, of course, Sospanfach is the traditional rugby song. <laughs> Amazing! <laughs> I love that. It's the best version I've ever heard. Only boys allowed. <laughs> uh, Michael Bam's third choice on this edition of Music Was My First Love from Only Boys Allowed. How did the development of Tamoxifen come about? And at the same time, can you explain uh, to our listeners exactly what it is? Um, well, Tamoxifen was developed in the... Um, early, late 1960s, early 1970s. It was originally thought, um, it, it was thought to be an anti-estrogen and it was developed as a contraceptive pill. And when they tested it out on rats, they found it made them fertile, the opposite. Um, but a chance finding, it's too complex uh, <laughs> to go into, uh, was that um, it had an effect on cancer cells, uh, and mouse, mouse experiments showed that. And then um, ICI, as it was at the time, uh, developed it into a, a, um, a tablet to do trials for treating uh, cancer. Um, and because it was thought to be an anti-estrogen, um, they uh, selected to go for breast cancer because breast cancer is one of the few cancers which has an estrogen receptor. So it recognizes estrogen and the, the chemical binds to the cancer cell. And again, forgetting the technicalities, when tamoxifen binds to a cancer cell, a breast cancer cell, the breast cancer cell dies. So um my i was involved in t two ways in 1974 um yes it, i was in cardiff uh, at the time and i was working uh, some of the time i worked with terry priestman in the um the cancer hospital I've forgotten the name of it for the moment uh, um was it oh sorry i've forgotten the name of the the hospital just north uh, Falindra. Yes, yeah. yes, that's, yes, of course. And we um, we did some trials comparing tamoxifen with chemotherapy for advanced breast cancer. And uh, tamoxifen seemed to be as good as chemotherapy in the advanced cases if the uh, of breast cancer, but much less toxic. We developed um, a chart. Uh, a metric for measuring quality of life. And the quality of life, uh, a woman taking uh, tamoxifen was better than the quality of life with women having chemotherapy for advanced breast cancer. But much more important than that was we thought, if it's good for advanced breast cancer, why don't we use it at the time of diagnosis? 
because um, if you see the logic for that, you take a radical mastectomy, you take all the cancer away, but it comes back in five or ten years. Mm. Well, that has to mean that there are foci, uh, deposits of microscopic cancer somewhere in the body. It has to be the case. So that we uh, postulated, and then um, um, we did the first trial for using this drug and in the early disease. And it was a, a randomized trial comparing those who took the tablet at the time of diagnosis uh, with those who took the tablet at the time of metastatic disease, secondary disease. And that came, produced a stunning result. And we published it in The Lancet in 1983 and this was a very non-toxic medication that actually improved survival for those treated uh, early disease. And it's now uh, pretty much standard of care. And it, uh, am I right in saying it contributed to 30% reduction in mortality? Yeah. It, uh, if you just look at the trends in mortality for breast cancer, uh, the... Um, the, it peaked in 1984, mortality from breast cancer, and then largely as a result of the introduction of tamoxifen, it fell steeply. And within uh, five, uh, five to ten years, the uh, mortality had fallen by about 30-40%. But then later, uh, you became responsible for the largest ever international cancer trial, which showed anastrozole to be even more... Anastrozole. I beg your pardon. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, that's another hormone treatment. Um, it's got a different mode of action. Um, it's only effective in postmenopausal women. Right. Uh, and we compared it. I think we had a trial of... International trial of about 9,000 patients comparing tamoxifen as the standard versus this drug called anastrozole in postmenopause for women, and it was very well tolerated and even better than tamoxifen. So that led, taking those two things together, it led to a 50% reduction in breast cancer mortality. Mike, let's uh, move on to your fourth choice. Tell me about the chorus of the Hebrew slaves. Right. You'll notice uh, I love choral music mm. and several of my choices of choral. Um, this is um, my wife and I, Judy, my wife, uh, she loves the opera and she has favourites. And she loves uh, um, Nabucco uh, mostly because she loves the chorus of the Hebrew slaves, uh, Verdi's Hebrew slaves. Everyone loves that. But um, I go a little bit further, um, not just loving the singing, but uh, loving the significance of the music. Um, first of all, Nabucco is Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and um, so this is n not the ex slaves of the Exodus, people think. No, this is Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the fall of the Second Temple, uh, and the, uh, the Jews uh, being taken off to Babylon. So there's that side, additional. And also, it's become, it's been adopted by left wing political parties as referring to the slavery of the uh, the working man so it it is uh, there's so much going on above above and beyond the beauty of the singing
Andrew, yeah. that's lovely. Did you notice? Um, did you notice the rhythm? It came out beautifully. It's a yeah. waltz. You yeah. can dance to that. Yeah. <laughs> what was the uh, first nursing counselling service at King's College Hospital that you developed in 1981? So, sorry, the first nurse counselling service. Oh right. Um, uh, I realised that it was impossible for um, a single-handed surgeon to spend enough time with a, a, a newly diagnosed patient with breast cancer. There is so much to explain. Um, the diagnosis, the prognosis, the treatment, uh, surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, tamoxifen, so much. So. I, I realised that we needed help. Um, doctors are expensive and um, nurses are less expensive and perhaps a bit more kind. So I had the idea that we needed backup with cl uh, specialist nurses. We now call them clinical nurse specialists. So I um, appointed a um, very nice nurse, uh, uh, the senior nurse, very kind, nice manner, and trained her to be an expert in breast cancer. And she went on to lead um, a, a new discipline, actually, clinical nurse specialist, uh, and um, particularly for breast cancer. And so I could be seeing, examining, diagnosing a patient in one room, and she could be taking my last patient and answering all the questions that mm. she wanted with all the time that was needed. Let's uh, move straight on to the end of fifth choice, uh, the opening movement of Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. Yeah. Um, this, this will have something to do with the next one. They're linked. They're linked in two ways. Uh, the next one is the... Uh, uh, Polovsian dances from Borodin's Prince Igor. And uh, I'll tell you why. Um, both uh, pieces are uh, telling a story. And it's telling a story about uh, an adventure. All adventures have three components. Uh, the hero leaving home, uh, the hero having the adventure, and then the hero coming back home to the comfort of uh, the family. And um, Scheherazade is uh, Rimsky-Korsakov's music, um, the story of A Thousand and One Nights, essentially. And the one um, adventure story that it illustrates is Sinbad the Sailorman. The, uh, the reason Oh, oh, yes, and the link to Borodin is that Grimsky Korsakov uh, was a contemporary of Borodin, and they were wor worked together on um, the the next number that you uh, the, ne the next music you're going to play. Now, I like these adventure stories, which are told through music. I like to travel to exotic places myself, 
And when I travel, I've traveled all over the world uh, teaching my subject. I've been very privileged in that way. And there are always that three, three episodes preparing to go on a long journey, doing your stuff, having the adventure in an exotic place and looking forward to coming back home. Uh, so that's why uh, I choose Scheherazade, which uh, illustrates what it is to have an adventurous life. You're listening to another edition of Radio Glamorgan's Music Was My First Love with Professor Michael Baum, a leading authority on breast cancer, choosing ten of his favourite tracks. just heard uh, the Palazzian dances uh, from Borodin's Prince Igor, you would have recognised the melodies that was used for that popular song, uh, uh, Stranger in Paradise. Ah, and I'm a stranger in paradise. <laughs> <laughs> that's where they got it from. Uh, the story, this is the, uh, the midpoint in an adventure. Prince Igor goes off on his adventures and he ends up in some exotic uh, oriental place. Um, I think it's something like Uzbekistan or Azerbaijan, um, but uh, we'll, we'll call it Polovistan. And uh, he's entertained by the, um, the king of this uh, country with beautiful dancers, beautiful girls. It's a lovely, absolutely gorgeous I've seen it, my wife and I have seen it twice. Uh, it's because it's got everything, as well as um, the music and the singing. It's also got a, um, a ballet. This is a long ballet sequence, and uh, uh, it's gorgeous. If, it, if Never miss a chance to buy a ticket for Prince Eagle. <laughs> I want to take a break for a moment from the discussions uh, of the battles with breast cancer. A move to a uh, subject of mental health, uh, something yes. we talk about as often as we can on Radio Glamorgan. And back in 1984, you had your own battles. Can you talk a little bit about the build-up, the signs, and how it finally came to a head? Yeah. Um, I, 1984 was a bad year for me. I uh, developed a, uh, a acute depressive illness. Now... Uh, people don't understand what depressive illness is. Uh, they think it's, oh, you're a bit pissed off, pull yourself together. It's nothing like that. Uh, acute depressive illness is that you, apart from uh, feeling bad, you feel useless. You feel you're um, to, to just a turd in the, in, and that the world would be better off without you. And that's the terrifying thing about uh, you really genuinely feel that you're just an incumbent to your family and to the uh, uh, and to your hospital, and that was brought on because the excessive workload that was uh, as a, I was professor of surgery at King's College Hospital then, and as well as doing a full full time clinical job, 
I was running an academic department responsible for teaching, responsible for examination, exams, and running research programs as well. And um, there was a long period where I was working uh, about 11 hours a day for five and a, six days a week. And there's a limit, and I cracked. Mm. Uh, so this was an acute onset by simply overworking. And this is much more common. And pe people are reluctant to confess that they're being through this. But it's um, uh, something like 40, 50% of uh, oncologists uh, find that work so difficult. They burn out or become acutely depressed. So um, Dr. Kier cure yourself. It's not that the health of the med of the doctors, no one cares for the doctors. So um, when I went to the Royal Marsden Hospital after, after leaving uh, King's, there was a, a, uh, a physician who was responsible for the care um, of doctors. So just to emphasize that doctors can become depressed. And since then, I've been exquisitely sensitive um, to the problems of depression. And some of my work at, uh, was involved to investigate the incidence of depressive illness amongst patients with cancer. And it turns out there's about 30 percent uh, have a, a serious, significant uh, depressive illness. Uh, yeah. You wrote in, in the book that <clears throat> in practice, like everyone else working for the NHS, your goodwill would be exploited, carrying out the same burden as all uh, NHS colleagues. So yes. when during the initial stages of COVID we saw those mobile made video clips of NHS staff broken, were you able to em um, empathise and did it open up old wounds for you? It, uh, absolutely. I, I, I looked at that and I felt, in a way... Um, Guilty. I feel I should be there. I should be on the front line. Mm. Why are they having to take it? Well, it was ridiculous. I'm in my 80s. So A, I certainly identified what they were going through and uh, felt, really felt for them. The uh, genuine empathy and guilt that I wasn't helping. And just going back to your breakdown, you also uh, found support from a friendly NatWest band manager. Um, I think... Probably the, the best therapy I had, I was on antidepressive drugs, but probably the best therapy was um, the, the family, my wife mm. and the family uh, persuading me I, I was worth something. And please, you know, hang around, you are worth something. Uh, and, uh, and I think it was a combination of medication and uh, uh, lucky to have a strong marriage and a, and a caring family, extended family. And the final question on the breakdown, did it change your future work ethic and the important split between work and family time? Yes. Um, I, I made sure, and I was advised by the psychiatrist, that to try and get a better balance in my life between work and uh, leisure, and uh, amongst my leisure activities, I, I used to draw and paint when I was uh, a kid. I, I took up uh, uh, painting and drawing. And uh, to this day, I've got a studio up in the attic here. 
uh, and I found that a great comfort. Therapeutic. Yeah. To return to the chat about uh, medicine, in an open letter to uh, King Charles when he was uh, Prince of Wales, you wrote, and I quote, the power of my authority comes with the knowledge built on 40 years of study and 20 years of active involvement in cancer research. Your power and authority uh, rests on an accident of birth. Uh, well, first of all, I should say, bang goes the knighthood. Uh, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's, the, the thing that makes me tremble with you dragging that up is that it's now King Charles. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a royalist. I support the royal family. I think they're wonderful. But I, um, uh, I thought he'd gone too far. He, he was advocating quack medicine, just to put it very, very bluntly. He was advocating bluntness, quackery, homeopathy and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. You describe alternative medicine and homeopathy as a cruel deception. As what? A cruel deception. It's it's a deception. I'm a clinical scientist. I have an open mind. And an open mind means you're prepared to do randomised controlled trials. And when it comes to homeopathy, there have been many randomised controlled trials comparing placebo with homeopathy. And it simply doesn't work. Mm. It, it simply doesn't work. It, it, it's, I, I just get so, so frustrated. The idea that people dismiss you as if you've got a closed mind. Don't have a closed mind. If something works, we use it and call mm. it medicine. If it doesn't work, we don't use it and call it alternative medicine. But as, as you said uh, in an interview I found online with your daughter, that if it was an alternative medicine, we would use it. If it works, yeah. then it becomes medicine. Yeah. If we did a trial of homeopathy and we saw it worked, then it ceases to be alternative. It becomes, becomes medicine. Yeah. So medicine is that which is work. Alternative medicine is that which doesn't work. Staying on that subject ever so slightly, it's become common um, through the likes of Angelina Jolie and others to have uh, double mastectomies as a, a just-in-case precaution. Does it make a difference, or is that just a, a too drastic a measure? Um, yeah, first of all, we're talking about someone with the BRCA mutation. Angelina right. Jolie had the BRCA mutation. And the the the, uh, the problem with that, with uh, the cancer, with the, that mutation, is it's both breasts are at risk. Not only both breasts, but the ovaries, so ovarian cancer, can be at risk. Mm. So it was um, a very courageous but appropriate uh, treatment to for her to have uh, bilateral mastectomy, ovarectomy, and reconstruction. Um, it seems brutal. I still think uh, it doesn't sound right. But at the moment, we don't have anything better. Uh, so I think one day there will be a time to um, ch- treat the problem with a genetic, a genetically rather than this mechanistic way of major surgery. Professor Mike Bam is my guest on this edition of Radio Glamorgan's Music. It was my first love. And my, my knowledge of opera and uh, classical music is limited. Uh, that said, I've heard of many of your musical choices, including the next choice. So tell me about, and I p- apologise if I'm saying this wrong, 
Solveig's song from Krieg's, uh, Grieg's Pier Glint? Well, it's actually the third part um, of uh, the adventure. Uh, I love the narrative in these bits of music. Uh, the Scheherazade was the opening, Sinbad sailing off into the distance. Um, the Polovsian dancers were the hero has arrived and uh, this is having his adventure. Now, the third uh, uh, piece is the hero coming home. But the hero's wife is also a heroine waiting for her husband and went off on an adventure to come home. Well, Piergint is a beautiful... Uh, it's Very sadly, it's rarely played. I've never... I've never heard it played in the concert hall, the complete thing. But it is another adventure story. Peer Gint is often an adventure, leaves his wife Solveig behind. And Solveig's song is so beautiful. It's the yearning of a uh, faithful wife looking forward, hoping her husband is safe and looking for his return. And this is Solveig's song. cancer screening, uh, but you've come to believe that it has serious flaws. Can you explain in layman's terms why you believe that breast cancer screening doesn't save lives? Oh, it's so complex. Um, to sum up, uh, for every complex problem, there's a simple solution and it's wrong. I didn't say that. <laughs> but that sums it up. Mm. Breast cancer is a very complex problem. The idea, catch it early, save a breast and save a life. It doesn't work. Now, I was convinced it should work. And I was uh, on the committee setting up the screening uh, service in 1987, 1988. I uh, set up... Um, the very first unit of the southeast of England when I was working at King's. So I'd invested a lot of time and energy. And following the data, as time went by, it became apparent to me it was not performing as it was supposed to. And if, if the data fails to support your beliefs, as a scientist, you have to make a U-turn. Now, politicians are terrified of making U-turns, mm. but it is expression of the scientific method. If the data fails to support your beliefs, then you follow the data, not your beliefs. So the problem here is... Uh, the science is pretty clear. Um, mammography, all the modern studies have demonstrated that um, you don't save lives. We're talking about saving lives, not mm. avoiding breast cancer deaths. The, the bottom, bottom line with mammographic screening 
this is the bottom line. Just listen to this. For every thousand women screened for 10 years, you avoid one death from breast cancer at the cost of one additional death from non-breast cancer causes. Mm. So it's um, a a zero-sum game. And because it goes very, very much against common sense uh, and political investment, it's um, very, very difficult to, to, to get across. Um, if I had half an hour to talk to a lay public, treat them as adults, I could make it a very clear, uh, a very clear why it doesn't work. You forget the simple one. The simplest thing that happens is you screen every three years, so you're dredging the ocean once every three years. Mm. Now that means the the fast growing cancers will appear between screening. The slow growing cancers will hang around. So screening picks up the good cancers that were never going to kill you, whereas the bad ones pop up as interval cancers. Now, anyone can understand that. So the data does not support screening. I do not support screening, but it's still out there. In 1985, uh, four years after my mum's mastectomy, you had a, a world overview at Oxford University looking at all the data, and it was agreed unequivocally, yes. and we touched on this earlier, that breast conserving surgery was just as good and a holdier kinder than radical mastectomy? Um, well, <clears throat> 1984, 85 were very important years in breast cancer because we have, um, thanks to uh, P- Richard Peter, so Richard Peter, statistician at Oxford, and I was working very closely with him, we put together a committee and we put together all the clinical trials concerning surgery or medical treatment. Um, we showed convincingly that breast conserving surgery was as safe as total mastectomy. And we also showed equivocally that uh, systemic, adjuvant systemic, but giving medical treatment at the same time with tamoxifen or chemotherapy improved survival. And all that came about 1984-85, and then we started seeing the fall in mortality from breast cancer and the beginning of the end of radical mastectomy. Is it still the case that breast cancer comes back, or are we at a stage now where we can stop its return? Um, The uh, survival of breast cancer is improving all the time, but survival isn't really the uh, the measurement we should be using. Um, but the real measurement is mortality, uh, which is how many deaths in the community. Mm. Now, the number of deaths in society uh, with breast cancer has fallen so steeply that it's beginning to look that ninety uh, percent uh, of breast cancers these days are cured. And that's not by screening, but by better treatments. Mm. Treatments are getting better all the time. So it's looking uh, very, very optimistic. Good. And breast cancer is now seventh in the league for killing off women. 
uh, you must remember the commonest causes of death for women are dementia and heart disease mm. and breast cancer is seventh in the league let's uh, let's get back to some music tell me about your eighth choice which is hallelujah the chorus from handel's messiah performed by city voices cardiff <laughs> This uh, this takes me way back to my first connection with Wales. Um, before I settled down to my career as a surgeon, I had some time on my hand, and I was a member of a choir, believe it or not. And we were good. It was a very serious choir. And um, we uh, once went to sing at the Frank Ockman musical I Stedford. And one of the set numbers was the Hallelujah Chorus from the Messiah, Handel's Messiah. So I'd love to hear it sung again, knowing it's from the Frank Ockley musical I've Stedford. And here am I going back more than 60 years in my life. Michael, it's not talked about much, but how big a, an issue is male breast cancer? Very little. Right. It's about uh, one in uh, a hundredth of the incidence of uh, women. Uh, it may be indicating that the family has a BRCA mutation. Right. Uh, and it's much easier to treat, but it's really rare. Um, let's stick with the music for a little bit I think I could guess uh, why you've chosen the next song but you tell us why <laughs> Hey Jude from the Beatles <laughs> right um, I, this is the only bit of pop popular music <laughs> I, I'm putting in um, I, I haven't time for popular music these days but when I was courting in the 60s I loved the popular music and my wife and I think we had the best popular music in the mid 60s and uh, we love the Beatles, and my wife's name is Judy, and uh, for her support in all of my travails, I want you to play Hey Jude. Hey Jude, don't make it bad, take a sad song and make it better. Tell me about the joy in 2007 of receiving the Gallon Lifetime Achievement Award for the treatment of breast cancer. Um, well, it was recognition of my lifetime achievement. I, it's uh, given every two years. It's from the uh, Swiss government, and you get a nice sum of money and a, a Rolex watch. It's a really nice <laughs> prize. Uh, but the most important thing is to at the end of a long career, to get some recognition. I've had no recognition in my own country. As you said, I've been denied a night. <laughs> uh, but it, it, within the uh, scientific community, I, I have uh, been re recognised for my work in breast cancer. Life... Um, Go on. No, uh, I've, um, I've also had some other funny awards. The... Mexican oncologist. <laughs> Mexico gave me a lifetime achievement as well. <laughs> so as you say, everywhere except here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, life away from medicine is obviously about Judy, uh, the children and grandchildren. Uh, you've become a prolific painter and author, not just uh, medical books, but also fiction. Um, yeah. 
and a man after my own heart. You like whiskey, although I'm told uh, from your son Richard that you're actually a whiskey nerd. Is this true? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I have. They're not hobbies. Uh, when you retire from a busy life, you've got to fill up the time available. I'm still energetic. And um, I went to art school and I, I've got a studio, so I paint. I love writing. People ask why I write, and I say I can't help it. Mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm halfway through my fourth novel. <laughs> and another hobby of mine is, is uh, whiskey. I'm very interested in whiskey. My son uh, is uh, um, an expert. And in June this year, we went off on a, a tour of the distilleries in um, the uh, South West Highlands, Lovely. which was great fun. Yeah. And uh, we even trade. Uh, um, we, we, as a team, we often trade. We get rare bottles and sell them as a profit. Oh, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> your uh, final choice is written by William Blake and Herbert Parry. Tell me about Jerusalem. Well, I love Jew Jerusalem. Um, every year we go to the last night of the proms, but not the ones, uh, <laughs> not, not the, the one at the Albert Hall, but the one at, uh, in our local uh, neighbourhood in Hampstead Garden suburb. Uh, we have a proms, and um, the last night of the proms is the same as last night of the proms at the, the Royal Albert Hall. And we always end up with Jerusalem. I sing my heart out. I love the words and I love the music. And I think it's appropriate to finish this broadcast with Jerusalem. One final question uh, before we hear it. I mentioned in my opening all your achievements and the many things you've been involved with during your professional career. Is there one thing that stands out that you're most proud of? Most proud of? In my career? Mm. Uh, yes. It's the one that's never been recognised. Um, setting up a clinical trial centre. You can't do clinical trials uh, comparing A with B, like tamoxifen, not tamoxifen, mastectomy, not uh, breast conserving. You can't do that unless you've got a clinical trial centre. And I established the first clinical trial centre in this country, in fact, in Europe, in 1981 at King's. And that was the Cancer Research Campaign Clinical Trial Centre. Never had recognition for that, but that's the thing I'm most proud of. Michael Baum, I've really enjoyed the last hour and a half. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to Music Was My First Love on Radio Glamorgan, where Professor Michael Baum has been choosing 10 of his favourite tunes. I'm Andrew Wolfe, and join me again soon when another guest chooses 10 of their favourite tracks on another edition of Music Was My First Love. Music of the future.